Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. So I'm here today with entrepreneur Brian Schimmerlich. Brian is the founder and CEO of Vango Labs, which is a software and media company that engages consumers and gets data. Vango's platform combines interactive digital media with point of purchase. Vango creates retail in new locations through a direct interactive sales and media channel and manages the network remotely. Some key investors in Vango include Kevin O'Leary, Lori Grenier, Gary Vaynerchuk, and hip-hop star Nas. Uh, thanks for coming on today, Brian. Absolutely, Aaron. Great to meet you. Yeah, I would love to kind of start this out with you bringing me back maybe to, you know, your childhood or growing up and uh, your kind of entrepreneurial journey and how you got started there. Do you have any kind of first experiences uh, with being an entrepreneur? I definitely fit that kind of classic stereotype of the kid at the corner selling lemonade. I remember one day I'm at, I'm at the corner of our street selling flowers and my mother's like, got so angry. She's like, you can't just collect my flowers and sell them. I remember in sixth grade selling candy, like, uh, you know, right in the spirit of, of Gary Vaynerchuk. And so, yeah, I always had that interest in how businesses work, how people made money, what provides people with value. Any any success stories that came from that, like the the candy store in uh, in sixth grade? Well, I think just that there's always opportunities to either meet people's needs or provide a superior level of something, whether that's product or service. And it takes just kind of a confidence and initiative to just get started and see what happens. Cool. So you have a master's in business administration from uh, the NYU Stern School of Business, which is actually pretty famous for uh, being a, a school that kind of molds entrepreneurs. Uh, so what aspects of your studies there uh, help to mold your approach and style uh, as a CEO? So, yeah, I started my career in finance at J.P. Morgan and spent six years in finance and I just hated it. You know, it was they were good jobs. Uh, you know, I was able to support myself. But the only problem was I was miserable. And I looked around at my boss and his boss and it seemed like everyone was miserable. And I. I was unwilling to accept that that was the status quo, that that was to be expected, that I was sentenced to a you know career of misery. And I really value happiness and being self-aware. And so I went back to business school to just really create the opportunities to do something very different. And so NYU is a great school and it does mold entrepreneurs, but in general, I, I you know, entrepreneurs are, are kind of 
a little bit self-molded and mentor-molded. Um, so there's so much you can learn there. But for me, I really just saw it as um, two years of freedom where I could take a risk-averse approach to starting a business because I had that safety net where if it failed, I would just have a better story to go and get a normal job. So I really approached it as just an opportunity to give myself. And so from, you know, the second month at school, I was just completely immersed with launching this business, uh, ended up switching to a part-time program and raising a million dollar seed round before finishing school. That's incredible. So when you quit this JP Morgan Chase job, uh, did you know for sure that uh, starting your own company was what you were going to do? Or did you know that you just couldn't handle uh, that life anymore? And was that hard for you to kind of turn down, you know, the comfort uh, and stability of that job? Yeah, it was hard. You know, once, you know, you get used to a certain life and it's hard to change that up. And I think I took the risk in kind of the safest way possible, but it's still a risk. And I wasn't so confident that I was going to launch a, a business that would ultimately scale and, and be successful, but I wanted to try and I wanted to learn, right? So what are the right reasons to start your own business? I don't think there's actually that many. I don't think it's to be your own boss and I don't think it's to get rich, right? I think the, the right reasons are either you're just so passionate about a certain problem or, or product, or you want to learn. And so for me, it was really about like, let's, let's go off on this learning experience and see what happens and how I had that safety net planned. And so it was kind of like a nice balance for me to try something new. And you said you started this within um, kind of a month or two of being at school. I saw that you were also at the same time uh, interned to the CEO uh, at a company called Conductor. Did working directly with the CEO kind of help you learn at that time and learn that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Or what was that experience like as well? Yeah, so great question because that, that experience was incredibly impactful. So I was, I was so desperate to change my, my life that I actually did that internship before starting business school. And like, you know, it's so simple and it seems kind of obvious when you say it, but that's the kind of thing that entrepreneurs do that most people don't do. Right. So I'm like, you know, I'm not going to wait three more months to start this process. Like let's start now. So I had no connections, no relationships. I literally went to a startup job fair and convinced, you know, they were kind of looking for unemployed college graduates. And I convinced them why, you know, this was a great idea to let me intern there. And so I started out, Conductor is a great company. They constantly win awards for their culture. The CEO, is this guy, Seth the Smirtnik. He's a mentor of mine. And, you know, they're still thriving today. They were acquired by WeWork. And then Seth bought the company back. Super interesting company, interesting guy. So 
I spent a couple weeks doing reporting for an account manager uh, alongside unemployed college graduates, and I managed to get in with Seth. And I had this incredible experience to really get access to what it's like running a 30-person startup, to see the difference in the faces, in the, in the relationships, in the passion that people had for their jobs compared to finance. And my eyes were wide open and I was like, okay, this is a good start. <laughs> I, am, I am seeing that people are, are happier here and that they care about the contents of the work. They care about the company. So I had that launching pad as I went to school and that extra step of validation that I was on the right path. And, and how did you kind of convince uh, Seth to let you in so quickly? It sounds like you just started there and all of a sudden you're working one-on-one -on -one directly with the CEO, which is obviously a, a great learning experience for anyone, but especially someone wanting to start their own business. How did, how did you kind of make that happen? I, I think it, it's the same concept as you know, kind of supporting my, my team members today at Bingo, selling, often selling into clients. It's really just, how can I be helpful to you? And figuring out ways to be helpful in a low maintenance way, right? You know, he's not interested in spending a day training me so that I can work for him for two months and, and go another way, right? There's kind of this natural tension to any internship. So I, uh, you know, where it's not permanent. So how can people invest so heavily? So you just kind of make it easy and just kind of like show up and, and be there and understand what's going on. So, you know, I, I think I remember kind of two one-on-one -on -one meetings that, that really impacted the experience. One was kind of in the beginning being like, Hey, I just want like 10 minutes of your time to explain all of these thoughts that I have on your business and him being like, Oh, you're being fast. You're being efficient. You're being respectful of my time. You're showing you care about this. You're going above and beyond and you're showing that you have common sense. All of a sudden I'm in a different category as the other interns. Right. And then at the end, uh, after the experience, really coming up, treating him as if I was coming to him from McKinsey and like, you know, Hey, here are my thoughts on your business. Like, uh, you know, I know some of this is very different, but have you thought about doing it this way? Because this could lead to that, 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 uh, have you thought about like incorporating this person into a different part of your business because it might have this type of impact. And so that set the trajectory of our relationship which remains like a really, really strong, you know, mentor relationship to this day, you know, 10 years later. And so did you start Vango Labs while you were still working at Conductor? No, it was kind of like a pre-MBA internship. So it was okay. like kind of from April to August. And then I left and, and jumped into the, uh, the business school program. And so you said within a month or two, uh, that's when you started Vango Labs. Talk to me about that. How did you come up with that idea? I feel like so many people start a business because they see a problem, but this is like a really unique business that's kind of, I don't know, how did, how did you first spot this problem and decide that's what you wanted to do? 
Yeah, I believe in the in the problem solution construct. Mm-hmm. I I would not say that I followed it. So I was kind of in this mentality of okay, let's start something, start something. Um, you know, I was talking to people about how do you get into venture, and you know, the answer was basically start a successful company. And so that like pushed me even further into it. And really, it was as simple as having this mindset and going out with my business school friends and taking a taxi home to uh, where I lived on second street and Avenue C and not wanting to wander around Avenue C in the middle of the night for a snack and just being like, there should be snacks in my taxi. (laughs) This was 2011. So like Uber was kind of just getting started. And so it was very much still dominated by the yellow taxis. And then the idea really like, you know, got under my skin. Like I was thinking about it all the time. And so it was like, I I need to try to make this happen. And how do I do it? And so I started just working through kind of like some mock-ups, some designs. I reached out to the one person, a friend's father, who was in venture. I'm like, you know, is this a good idea? This seems like a good idea. Like, this is how I'm envisioning it. This is the model. This is how the numbers would work. You know, if we saw a 1% conversion to transact, these are the kind of uh, numbers we could generate the unit economics. Like, it's going to be logistically challenging, but here are some of these hubs where all the taxis are going in their day. And he was kind of like, I love it. And I happen to know the largest taxi owner in New York City. Would you like to meet him? (laughs) And so I kind of went home from that meeting. I was kind of like so excited searching around. And I found that New York City had their own business plan competition. And it happened that the first submission deadline was the next day. It was like November 2011. So I just like raced all night, filled out this application, completely just the concept in my mind. And then, you know, two weeks later, it was like, hey, you're you're in the, the second round of this competition. The next round is due in eight weeks. And I'm like, okay, I have eight weeks to make as much progress as possible. And so I just really approached it to make progress every day found a co-founder, Stephen Bofill, who was designing helicopters and had that kind of mechanical space 3D design, really invested in the visualization and made it to the finals of this competition, went on stage with these beautiful visualizations. I already asked some investors what questions they would ask me, so I was super prepared for the Q&A, the appendix slides, just absolutely crushed it, took down the whole competition. We got $17,000 of seed capital and we're on the inside cover of the New York Post the next day. We were on our way. That's incredible. I I feel like it's a sign that you were able to to do that within one day um, and, you know, be able to to get that far in the competition. So with you talked about your co-founder designing helicopters. Uh, he didn't immediately quit his job to work with you, did he? No. So he did not. And he joined us after we had raised some funding okay. and could financially support him making that decision. 
So walk me through what those early days look like. Uh, right after you won that business competition, you're featured in the New York Post, you have uh, some capital and kind of proven that this is actually something that could work because you know you did it so quickly uh, and you were able to win that competition. What did your business model look like then? And what were like the first steps for you in actually building in this business? Yeah, so it was exciting. I think the excitement was kind of trumped by feelings of terror. <laughs> it was, you know, everyone was reaching out to me like, hey, thanks so much. Can't wait to see the taxi vending machines. And like, we were nowhere. We didn't have a product. We didn't have a business. So it was, the first feeling was, was a lot of pressure. And then we just kept that mentality of making progress every day. So we had this seed capital, $17,000. And it was like, okay, well, now our job is make as much progress with that capital as possible. And so Steve and I, um, and ultimately bringing in some other kind of core early team members who are still with us today, uh, Kevin Bendy, Jafar Mohammed, Steve's father, Brian Bowville. And we turned it into a prototype. It wasn't great. But we, you know, we got a friend at a metal shop to make shelves for us. We 3D printed most of the uh, components inside. We hacked an Android tablet to turn it into a kiosk mode and kind of put together a really simple interface. Used a off-the-shelf kind of square-like credit card plug-in reader. And it barely worked, but it worked enough to show seed investors that we were the real deal, that we were not just talk, that we were going to figure this out and we were going to make progress. So over, you know, we won the competition in March, 2012. And over that summer, I was kind of meeting with basically anyone who'd ever invested in a business or started a business and just talking about it, talking about the idea, you know, talking about their experience and what they've learned, seeking guidance, maybe a little too much guidance. I think I ultimately I scaled that back and kind of have to listen to a few key people and, and not ask for too many opinions, but it got us to a point where we were telling investors, Hey, you know, over the next three months, we're going to do this, this and that. And three months later, we're coming back. We're like, remember how I told you we were going to make a prototype? Here's our prototype. And I think that simple move really changes the game for fundraising because what it does is it establishes credibility. It's amazing how few people actually follow through and do what they say they're going to do. And so when I'm guiding people on fundraising, it's, it's an exercise of credibility. And so that helped us close some initial seed investors that helped kind of create that snowball effect of making intros and those people making intros and closing a, a really great round. So tell so, me about that seed round was, uh, you know, who was that initial first investor and, and how much was it? I mean, I feel like this is a, a, the type of business that needs a lot of cash to, to really get started. Yeah, unfortunately, that's correct. It has a hardware component. 
and and it takes capital to build and scale a business like this. Um, so I was really lucky that through NYU, I connected with Joanne Wilson, who's a very prominent um, New York City angel. And she's pretty unique in terms of her, how founder friendly she is. Like she really cares about her founders as human beings. She's not looking at this as a pure financial transaction. And so she said to me, okay, I want you to double the amount that you're raising. I want you to double the valuation. And I want you to use my name to go out and fill out the rest of this round. She introduced me to Brad Feld. She introduced me to David Tish. David Tish introduced me to Gary Vaynerchuk. And all of a sudden, we had this seed round that was like a, a dream. It was completely unbelievable. That's pretty special. Not everybody does that. And so there's luck. There's creating your own luck. That had a little bit of both. What's it like uh, working with Gary Vaynerchuk? How did you, how did that relationship come about? And what was it like meeting him and then ending uh, convincing him to invest in your company right away? I'm a huge fan of his. To this day, I ingest all of his content. And, you know, there's a part of me that wants to be skeptical of it, just the sheer volume of it. <laughs> but it's so good. It's so it feels so authentic. It's very thoughtful. It's really about, there's, there's a lot of kindness to it. it. He's really just amazing. And I appreciate what he's putting out into the world and the impact that he's having. Honestly, on the investment side, it, it couldn't have been easier. I think he values his time so greatly that it was kind of like a 10 minute meeting. And then that was it. You know, I think he values um, some of the other investors' opinion and he values his time. And, you know, he knows that the seed company is a, is a concept and a, and a team. Um, so that piece was, was very easy. And, you know, I think he continues to inspire people. Very cool. So what did that look like going from uh, seed investment to actually having customers? Who were, who were some of your first customers back then and, and how did you go about acquiring them? Yeah, so right in the middle of kind of the seed round, post-seed round, we went through kind of a pivot to launching Vengo and figuring out, you know, okay, the idea of bridging digital and physical, the idea of providing value to consumers, engaging them, driving them to try and buy brands, that doesn't need to happen in a taxi only. And so it kind of opened the whole world to look at, you know, what's happening in, in digital at-home media, what's happening in automated retail, what's happening in consumer packaged goods marketing. And it was scary because it was a lot to learn and become an expert in. And we started understanding different location types, different audience profiles, and how do we structure this to launch and scale efficiently in a cohesive and thoughtful manner. You know, I'm not sure we did that perfectly, but we got our first start in bars, the Village Poorhouse on 11th Street and 3rd Avenue, kind of looking for people that would be open to 
like, hey, you know, we want to hang this vending machine with a digital screen that we control from the cloud on your wall. And we have no references and, you know, you're going to be the first. So, you know, kind of started with lower hanging fruit and nightlife. And then probably our, our first real blue chip client was NYU. And obviously, you know, they've been amazing in terms of their bias to support student entrepreneurs and, and alumni companies. And that really changed things. And then, you know, launched in Planet Fitness, Link Fitness, and just started closing some pretty serious accounts. Today, we operate 1,500 vending machines and locations. We generate revenue through digital media, content, advertising, retail, sampling, data collection. And we've really turned into a, a marketing platform that bridges the digital and the physical. So you have a really interesting business model, uh, and it's also very complicated. I'd love if you walked my listeners through your business model and maybe go from like where it first started and how that evolved over time. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. So, so where it started was we were just trying to figure it out, right? So we were selling products to consumers. Uh, we were bringing in consumer packaged goods, brand sponsors. And we saw it was really effective. You know, we were really able to reach these big consumer packaged goods brands. Like, I think as we launched, we already had, you know, Sour Patch Kids and Trident as a sponsor. Because these brands are, are looking to innovate. They're looking to reach consumers. They have these kind of test and learn type budgets. In 2015, 2016 is where we saw things kind of accelerate in the growth rate and the scaling. And what drove that was, you know, as a hardware company, you can't sink all of your money into hardware. And so we've started creating these channel partnerships where there's already large vending machine companies and operators that are in the business of buying products like this and kind of being the arms and legs on the ground. So we actually sell the physical device and we sit in the cloud and we operate the software. It shows, gets plugged in and connected. It shows up on our dashboard. And then our job as Vengo is to sit in the cloud and monetize the digital screen space and the physical merchandising space. And so we're really a marketing company helping brands and consumers interact um, we continue to evolve every year, right? Last year, we moved quickly and started stocking PPE, personal protective equipment, in the middle of the pandemic. And New York City actually came to us and said, put these in the subways, put these at all the commuter train stations. And so in the face of just like a massive business disruption, um, we were able to launch all kinds of innovations like that, like connecting to mobile to make the entire experience touchless. Um, this year, we're going all in on, on content and media. So we're, we're launching right now um, two new offerings. One where we can take over a digital screen that's already out there. So like if your, uh, your residential building in the city has a screen in the lobby, 
and they're not monetizing it. They're not putting good content there. And it's kind of just a waste um, with kind of no hardware. We can deploy our web app, take it over, and bring you the best internet content, third-party advertising. Um, and then we've launched a uh, just a screen, a screen and a mounting kit, where if you have a wall or if you have an old-school vending machine, we can just sit right on top you know, leverage your power source and just immediately from day one start running good content and, and advertising. So we continue to see opportunities to leverage our software and make the business as scalable as possible. So there's so many different variables to what you're doing here and so many things that kind of have to go right. You have to get the right sponsors. You have to let people, uh, convince people to actually use your vending machines, uh, convince the companies to use them. What was kind of the biggest obstacle here? And what, what continues to be uh, the biggest obstacle in you guys scaling? I guess the busy, biggest obstacle is, is just the logistics of it. It's a lot of moving parts, um, a lot of suppliers and clients. And that's kind of what part of our expertise has been navigating that complexity. You know, we kind of think of locations as the tip of the spear. And for locations, it's a pretty easy sell, right? We take up two square feet of unused space and we turn it into a on-brand customized amenity that gives people products and content that they want, that they need in this location. So we ask the, the location to do nothing. It's totally turnkey and just give us some empty space. So every time we launch a new location, it kind of results in inbound interest from like people seeing it and being like, hey, this is cool. I want this for my office. Hey, I bought this product and here's some feedback. And so it's kind of created this flywheel where it continues to grow and expand organically. So at the start, what was kind of the, the priority for you personally? Were you the ones pitching the physical locations? Were you pitching the sponsors? Were you doing both? What did that look like for you personally as the, as the founder? Different over time, right? So I think, you know, early days, I was kind of wearing all the hats. I was the lead salesperson. And then you kind of hire someone to fill a role and the CEO, you know, kind of goes out and explores new territory and supports the team. So right now, I, I think my number one job, um, and this I, I learned from the conductor CEO, is, is kind of the servant leadership model of, you know, I work for the team. It's my job to support them and understand their needs and give them the resources and tools for them to go out and succeed. And then I'm going out and exploring new territory. And as I kind of, you know, lead into a new territory, like, for example, direct media sales to digital at home media buyers, and I feel confident that I understand it and it's a part of our strategy going forward, then I go out and I hire someone to lead it. And I go back to serving the team and exploring new territory. So I'm, I'm certainly involved in some sales. Um, we have a great chief commercial officer, Marcy Weisler, who runs the sales department and, and the marketing department. And so, you know, it changes 
over time. And now I'm kind of involved in leading the kind of new initiatives of kind of the digital only and content offering and working through the branding on that and the launch and the marketing strategy. So it's constantly changing. I'm, I'm learning new things every year. Yeah, super interesting. So your, your job is really just to figure out what direction the business has to go and find the people who are right to do it and, and give them the resources needed. It's, it's interesting how it kind of kind of evolves over time. I want to get to um, your Shark Tank appearance. Tell me, what was that like? I mean, obviously, that's kind of every entrepreneur's dream to, to go into the tank and pitch to the sharks. What's it actually like being in there? Yeah, I, I saw my job as CEO of Venga to put it on the biggest stage. And so it's an incredible platform. Steve and I, you know, went out there to California and we had a lot of fun with it. We took it seriously on in preparing and understanding what questions would be asked in having the right demo, you know, to showcase the product. But then once we were prepared, we really just had fun with it and had a good time. And so, you know, it was an amazing platform to put us on the map. And no matter who we're selling into, at what level, people love talking about it. And it gives us uh, a level of legitimacy in people's minds, whether that's real or superficial, um, that, that's just unbelievably impactful. Is there anything different about being there that uh, people who are watching on TV might not realize? Well, I, I think there's a lot of components to it that are very real. We have no, you know, there's no interaction with the sharks until you walk in. They don't know who's coming. We don't get to, you know, meet them and get to know them beforehand. So it's a very exciting and challenging platform. And, uh, you know, we really made the most of it. So what is, uh, you guys closed the deal with uh, Kevin O'Leary and Laurie Grenier. So you were able to be successful and get uh, two sharks, which is obviously really hard to do. What did that relationship look like over time? Like, how does that actually evolve? How, how involved were they in helping you scale your business? How responsive are they? What did that look like? Yeah. So Kevin and Lori are responsive. They've been great. It's been a really helpful partnership as we scaled the company and reached out to locations and brands. So they're, they're available as we need them. And we've, we've kind of utilized that at, at different rates over different periods. So it's, it's been great. And how, how long ago was that? So it aired in 2016. And what was it like uh, immediately after airing for your company? I've heard of a lot of like uh, consumer packaged goods products that will completely sell out, but obviously it's a little different in your space. So what did, uh, immediately after airing, what was, what was life like for Van Gogh? It was a whirlwind. I mean, it was, it was chaos. We had an insane amount of inbound. So you're right. We weren't one of those companies that did like a million dollars of sales overnight. The website traffic was crazy. And I remember the precise numbers, but we set it up where it couldn't crash and, you know, it would have crashed if we didn't make the proper uh, precautions. 
And, uh, you know, we had to come up with a whole system to sort the inbound and then, you know, just try to figure out the plan forward and what we were prioritizing and not. It was it was complete chaos. And how regularly Uh, were you meeting with the Sharks after that versus like now, you know, almost five years later? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the specifics, I have to keep it confidential, but they've been great partners. That makes sense. And so take me take me through the next few years uh, of, of what it looked like post uh, Shark Tank in terms of what your business model, how your business model evolved uh, and how you were able to grow this from, you know, a small scale idea to being in 1500 locations. Yeah. So this was right, you know, 2016 was right where we saw some acceleration in terms of people coming in and placing orders for the hardware. Um, We work with the largest vending machine company in the country called Canteen, which rolls up the Compass Group. And so we really saw that, that acceleration where we could make progress in the deployment without um, investing all our money into the capital expenditure, the CapEx. And so the coming off the Shark Tank episode, it really accelerated the adoption, really helped us close deals, um, you know, helped us get in just about anywhere we wanted to go. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, it sounds like a, a big part of, of your company was your ability to pitch from from the start when you won this business competition to getting two sharks on Shark Tank to getting Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, do you have any specific tips that you would give uh, people in terms of fundraising and pitching their company? So in, in terms of fundraising, I think it's it starts with that credibility that we talked about. It's just really developing relationships and showing that you're someone who's real, someone who is trustworthy, someone who understands the needs of the counterparty, the investor. And I think a lot of that applies to everything, selling to clients, selling to team members. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's about respect. It's about understanding. It's about, you know, knowing that everyone is coming to this from their own personal perspective and you need to, you need to understand what their needs are, right? The best way to close an investor is to find an investor who's looking for a company like yours. And that, you know, if you're trying to pitch investors who are writing checks at different sectors, at different stages than yours, like it just, it's inefficient with your time. It's honestly kind of disrespectful to the investor. Like it doesn't show understanding. It doesn't show empathy. It doesn't show respect. So, you know, understand this person, right? Like a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're pitching, they just want to talk, talk, talk. And it's really about engaging the other person and confirming what that other person knows, understands, gets. It's about leading that other person to the outcome. And do you have anything that you usually do to prep? You know, say you're, you're pitching an investor for the first time. You know, I, I definitely understand that it's good to know exactly what they want and uh, what what they're hoping to get out of the relationship. But how do you, how do you actually do that if you if you don't know this investor before talking to them? The interweb, you know, there's so much stuff out there. So if you're talking to an investor, you should know 
the last couple investments they've made, which is I generally get from Crunchbase, mm-hmm. you should know some of the portfolio companies that they're featuring, which is, you know, if they're an institutional, it's on their website. Um, you should have like just a couple snippets on relevant insight from either someone on their team, a blog post they've written. I love watching videos of people because I think you can really gauge their style. Um, and it's incredible how impactful it is to be able to say like, Hey, you know, when you said this is the biggest mistake founders make at this event, I thought that was really interesting because I've seen this, this, and this, right. So, and just trying to make it real and develop an authentic relationship, um, where you understand what they're all about. Definitely makes sense and can be, can be hard to do, but it's super important to really learn, uh, who you're talking to now. Obviously, you've done really well, um, but starting your business is really hard. I'd love if you could talk about maybe some mistakes that you made along the way uh, and things that uh, you know went wrong and that maybe you could do over if you had a chance or that uh, were great learning experiences for you, but were, uh, were troublesome at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many mistakes, so many learning points. Um, a few that stand out are, you know, just early days kind of uh, I think the counterpoint to making progress every day is is slowing down and, and being a little bit more thoughtful about what you're doing and and I think there's times where that could have been better applied um, there's things that I rushed into and I think that you know in hindsight we should have been more cohesive in the types of locations that we deployed to because, you know, as we scaled, people would then look and be like, well, you know, this type of location is a different audience. You're not really at this scale. You're really two networks of sub scale. And so, you know, I would convince, I think confirmation bias is the most powerful thing. Entrepreneurs see what they want Mm -hmm. and they look at the information and they arrange it in a way that leads to what they already thought. I think that's, that's probably true of most people and most interactions beyond business. And so I think, you know, people need to have that devil's advocate, have that cynical counterpoint to just really think things through as the company goes from, you know, concept to series A type scale, um, just really thoughtful, cohesive. Um, those are a few that, that jump out. And who, who's been that devil's advocate for you to kind of help you avoid that confirmation bias? So my co-founder, Steve, certainly is. He has, a, you know, a different educational background, different interests. Um, and so he kind of comes to things from a different perspective. Um, my chief commercial officer, Marcy Weisler is an incredibly experienced wise advocate that, you know, also kind of plays that role. So I think it's also about self-awareness and growth to be able to see it in yourself where you can be like, you know, honest with yourself. Like I want to 
get to here. I want to see it this way. What am I missing? If I wanted to argue the other side, like what would I point to? So I think, I think that's probably the most important is like just being honest with yourself and with yourself and not, not trying to see the world the way you want it to be, but to really see the reality of it. It's hard. Yeah, definitely not easy to do and, and, and take some, some self-awareness and then some practice to really try and make sure you don't get uh, too much in your own head. So my last question uh, pertaining to Vango Labs is uh, I'd love to hear, where do you see yourself headed? Uh, maybe one year, five years, and 10 years down the line. Obviously, a lot happens that is unpredictable. No one could have uh, predicted this pandemic happening, and that changes everything. But rough estimate of, of kind of where you'd like to be in each of those timelines. Yeah, in one year, I'd like to see kind of steady growth of deployments of kind of the, the physical plus digital Vengo platform. And I'd like to see kind of exponential type launch and growth of our digital only platform where we're taking over screens and deploying just screens. So the one year is the exact time frame that we're kind of mapping out each step towards, um, towards achieving that goal. In five years, I'd like to see us, you know, at 15,000 points of presence in the real world that we're managing from the cloud and us acquired by a large, um, you know, probably a large tech company in the, in the marketing space. And, and in 10 years, you know, I'd like to be an operating partner at a private equity firm. Cool. Do you have any dream acquisition partner? I know, like, I'm sure there's a ton of companies you'd be happy to be acquired by at the, uh, at the right price. But is there, is there one company you could choose one right now? Um, who would that be? I guess Amazon. I mean, Amazon's doing some interesting things in kind of that automation of retail, digital plus physical. Um, you know, so I, I guess the, the counterpoint to that is being part of the evil empire that's taking over the entire <laughs> world. But I, I certainly think that would be the most validating uh, acquirer. Even without Bezos calling the shots there? Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, that sums up what I what I wanted to get out of Vango Labs in your journey there. Uh, I want to move on to what we call the quick fire round, where I'm going to ask you questions uh, that don't necessarily have to do with Vango Labs. And I'd love for you to answer in ideally 30 seconds or less for each of them. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Yes. Before I turn on my computer, I write down on a physical notebook. What am I, what are the three things that I want to get done that day um, on Mondays that week? And it provides a roadmap when I'm distracted to just turn back and see how am I tracking to those things. Uh, whose content do you listen to, watch slash read the most? I love this company, Gallery Media Group, that operates pure wow and 1.37 p.m. The content is just amazing and, and 1.37 is so relevant to my interests. What's your favorite purchase of $100 or less? It can be maybe slightly a bit more, but it can't be something like 
a car or a house or favorite purchase this year so random slightly embarrassing is i had this thing called the theracane it's i use it to stretch my shoulders like this and I'm, I'm like it's just a cane that reaches around my shoulders and stretches it feels so good <laughs> and provides an insane amount of value into my life uh any plug right. Where, where'd you get it exactly like $30 online, Theracane. Theracane. Cool. What is your favorite place that you've ever been to? I would have to say Kauai in Hawaii. Just so different, like a deserted island, just a different world. And what is your favorite brand that isn't Vango Labs? Nike. I mean, how they just have done it at this level for so long and just dominate. And their content is so moving. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, they always, always are staying relevant. And my last question here is, what advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence, whether that is in kind of the business or, or influencer world? Influence comes from authenticity and wisdom and credibility, right? Just like fundraising. So build it slowly and build it for real. And, and, and it'll be there as, as you keep growing. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us. And uh, I think that so many people out there can kind of learn from your journey and how you were able to build your company. So I appreciate you being so honest and, and taking your time today. Thank you. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit influencehunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.